appreciate that. Also, Michael Force, how long do you expect Saturday that you're going to need the teams out there for that? What's your what's your time frame? I guess you're starting around nine in the morning with that. You know the time frame for that? All right, nine to twelve because we also have the the Greg thing taking place, so we know the lunch over at Greg's house. So that gives the teen parents an idea of the timing of that. So about nine to twelve. All right, Acts chapter seven. We're going to look at the. first part of Stephen's sermon here. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. And I'll, I'll catch this up after I read and pray as to, what, as to what took place last time we were here two weeks ago. But Acts chapter 7, verse number 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into the land wherein ye now dwell. He gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on the wise, on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. He's laying a foundation. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. That's dealing with Egypt and then coming into the promised land. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over the land of Egypt and, and referring to Canaan, I'm, I'm using the pronunciation of the Old Testament for some of these, if, if you've noticed, and great affliction. And our fathers found no, no sustenance. And when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. Let me mention that, that number there. There's some like to say there's a different number there than there is in Genesis. They agree perfectly. One number is including uh, Joseph and his family and children. One number is not. There is no contradiction there. <clears throat> Again, verse 15. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. 
and were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, when God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask your blessing tonight. Lord, I pray for your mercy and your grace and your help. Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that I'd stay true to your word and use this tonight to be a help to us, to strengthen our faith. Lord, again, to see how incredible and amazing you are and amazing your word is. Meet the needs that are here. Lord, those who are struggling with different things, I pray you'd be helped to them. You'd even use this uh, tonight to be an encouragement to them to stay focused on you. Please bless and work, Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, two weeks ago, when we were uh, finished up chapter 6, we were looking at Stephen. We were first introduced to him at the beginning of the chapter. He was one of the initial servants selected to help settle the dispute uh, between the, the Grecian widows, uh, those, those Jews that were, grew up outside of Israel, that were Hellenistic, had Greek as a language, or whatever language they grew up in outside of Israel, as compared to those who grew up in Israel. And they, there was a problem arising, and so they settled it, and, and they, they picked those seven men, and Stephen is the first one that is mentioned, and he's an incredible man. And we looked at that, uh, the second half of that, two weeks ago. How he was an incredible example for us, how we need a whole lot more like Stephen today. He was a man that served God with all that he had. Um, he was humble. It, it, didn't matter if, it didn't matter for that matter if the position was a humble position, like serving tables, or if it happened to be somewhat of an exalted position. He was all about God. That was all that mattered. He was a man who, no doubt, after his conversion, his life became all about the Lord. He cared not for his own life, as we're going to see when we finish uh, chapter 7. He cared about God and truth. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the death of Stephen outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is the longest account we have of, of a death in Scripture. And what the Lord used Stephen to do was to launch the church into the rest of the world. At this time, there is one church in existence. It's just at Jerusalem. It is exploding in growth, but that's still all there is. But the persecution launches to another level with what takes place with Stephen. He is perhaps the true shot that was heard around the world. This man would be partially responsible for the most important conversion in all of Christianity, that of a man named Saul. Last time when we looked at this last week, we looked at three different aspects when he was when he was when he, he chose he set out to go to a synagogue that he would know. The synagogue that he chose had several different groups of people from different parts of Asia Minor and Europe that were meeting there, including one area called, um, um, I can't remember the, the name of it there now, Paul's hometown. It was the capital of it was Tarsus. So this would be the synagogue that Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, used. That's why he's there. It's his synagogue. He heads there and he begins to teach and preach. The Bible talks about the great wisdom that he used, his courage that he had. And during, while he's addressing the people there, there's some men there that rise up, the Bible says, to dispute with him. I focused a lot last week how I believe what makes the most sense of who rose up to speak against him would, of course, be Saul. 
This, this would be the leader in the synagogue of men when it came to knowledge. He is, on, he is on track to take over, if you will, one of the leading seminaries of the day. He is very likely the one who is speaking up against Stephen. And as it says, but he could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke. Stephen won, and he's hearing Stephen speak for the first time uh, about Christ. And like I said, I believe he's hearing for the first time the words how, how no man is justified by the deeds of the law. How he's hearing the case made for Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And he can't dispute it. And we're going to get a glimpse into the wisdom of Stephen today. Once they realize they can't win this argument, they have him arrested. We talked how Stephen was a man of conviction. How he really believed what he was saying. And our world needs people like that desperately today. This lie is being propagated that you choose your own truth. It's ridiculous. It's not what truth works for you. You don't get to choose your own truth. Either something is true or it's not. You can't create a truth. And so we have this philosophy, whatever works for you, whatever morals you like, you choose your own, you choose your own truth, and it's destroying cultures across the world. You don't get to choose your own truth, what's moral and what's not. Either something's right and wrong, or something's true, or, what, or it's not. And if you're following that philosophy, you're simply living a lie. You say, well, it works for me. I guarantee you the day comes when that no longer works for you. So, he was arrested and he was taken before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. As he left off, they looked upon his face as it had been the face of an angel, and they looked steadfastly on him. In other words, they couldn't take their eyes off the guy. There's something different about him. There's a holiness. There's a rightness. They can't dispute him. When he stands before the Sanhedrin, he's accused of a crime that brings capital punishment, that of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, against the law, against Moses, against the temple. The same charges that were brought before Jesus Christ. So now in our text is Stephen answering against those charges. He is asked by the high priest in the first verse. This is still Caiaphas, by the way. He's still high priest at this time. Basically, he's asked him, how do you plead? That's what he means by the statement, are these things so? Stephen gives an amazing defense of the gospel. He is going to show Christ in the Old Testament and prove he is not a blasphemer. Too often when we come to this, I, I know, I, I'm just being honest, reading through the Bible so many times, year after year after year, there's times I come up on this and I kind of, I, I always read it, but I go through it pretty quick. Because I, I just look at it as a history that he's going over of Israel. But boy, it's so much more than that. And we miss what it's about. Let's not forget that the words here that, that Luke is penning down were chosen by the Holy Spirit to be in God's Word. There's a reason they're here. We're going to begin to see it tonight. There's things here we need. Keep in mind, as I brought up, Stephen is our bridge. He is the transition between Peter and Paul's ministry. A ministry thus far that with Peter has been focused on the nation of Israel to Paul was going to be focused on the rest of the world. Stephen is the bridge. What he does here is amazing. We're not going to see him pleading for an acquittal. We're not going to see him begging for mercy. He simply goes right to truth. 
He's going to go on and present truth and show how this pseudo-Judaism that now is in existence missed who the Messiah was. And has been missing what true worship is all about. In our text today, he's going to start off with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And he's going to focus on the life of Joseph. So, that's what we're going to look at. The first part of foundation that he is making with Abraham, and then get into what he is doing with Joseph, and it's incredible. So, let's go back to verse 1 here. As we look, as he addresses the Sanhedrin, he brings up Abraham. Verse 2, let's jump to verse 2. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of... Glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. That's, that's the Old Testament word. Um, and anyhow, in verse 3, uh, 4, he's, he deals with God's calling him out of the land where he was dwelling. And then God called how he left, uh, how he left uh, where he was in Mesopotamia, went to Haran. And then he leaves there. He goes in the land of Canaan. How he actually never owned any of the land except for a very, very small portion. Basically, he owned a burial plot. That was it. Yet it was promised to him. And he, and he deals with him, as we, if we were to read more of the text, how even though, and God had told him, even though a lot of his descendants are going to have to dwell in a foreign land, as referring to Egypt, for 400 years. So what is Stephen doing right here? When he starts off, he refers to God as the God of glory, which is interesting because it only appears one other time, and that's in Psalm chapter 29. In the Old Testament, it appears one time, but Psalm 29, uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to go there and read Psalm 29, but it deals with really the awesome power of God. The Sanhedrin would know the text, as well as, of course, Stephen. He goes back when God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia. That's where Chaldea was, where Abraham dwelt. He dwelt in Ur. Now, Ur is a city right up on the Euphrates River, um, and it was a pagan, idolatrous place. We know from Joshua 24 that Abraham's family, they were, they were idolaters. That's what was there. That's what was present in this city. Abraham himself being part of that culture. He really has no merit that we're made aware of, of why God would call him. It was a sovereign act of God. Now, my guess is, just like with anybody in this earth, I can think, again, I refer to my own conversion of Christ, what I believe led to it, is I can still remember being a boy, being in the Catholic Church, yet wanting to know truth so bad. Laid on the grass on those summer nights, looking up at the stars, and just wanting to know God. I have no doubt Abraham had to have something similar in responding to general revelation in his life. So Abraham is going to leave Ur, the place he knows, when God comes to him, and, and moves him on. And he travels a pretty good distance. Ur is really not far from Kuwait. If, if, if you know the Persian Gulf where it tips on in, it's not right on the Gulf there, but it's not far off of it either. And then he travels up the Euphrates River about 500 miles. And then he stays in Haran until his father dies, and then the Lord has them move on into Canaan, which is another four to 500 miles. So he travels what would be basically north, uh, primarily north direction, a, a northwesterly direction up the Euphrates River, and then he comes uh, to a southwesterly uh, direction down into Palestine, the nation of Israel today. And Stephen is laying this foundation 
before the Sanhedrin, including, by the way, think about who asked the question by that. It's to make, think about that. The high priest is there himself for this. I mean, many times he would, he would convene with the Sanhedrin, of course, but you better believe he's there for this one. Stephen lays the foundation how even though God said, this is your land, I'm giving this to you, he never owned any of it, except for a small burial plot. Even at the time of God's promise, of course, he doesn't have any descendants, and yet God is talking about his descendants. He's establishing how Abraham was a life of faith, a sojourner, a pilgrim. He's going to bring up the time of being in a foreign land for 400 years and having to be called out of that. That's going to be, that's going to be important. He brings up circumcision being given to Abraham. He's going to refer to that later on as well. He's putting in a foundation. He's putting in a foundation, one, that he serves the exact same God they do. He's trying to establish, I'm not guilty of blasphemy before God. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like you do. He's showing God has never, rest never restricted revelation to a special person or a place. That Abraham was a pilgrim, a stranger. He was about faith in God and not faith in an institution. Point being, you better be willing to move when God moves, spiritually speaking, and not get glued to tradition, especially, especially when much of their worship went into a pseudo-Judaism, and especially much of what they even did apart from that was a shadow of when the Messiah would come. And no longer needed. But they weren't willing to move. He's establishing for centuries they served God without a temple, without the law of Moses. What is key is God, not the temple, not Moses. That it's about Him. God is the unchanging, everlasting one whom we serve. And now what he does is incredible. The foundation's in place. He's saying, listen, I believe the same God you do. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I know what I'm talking about. Then he goes into Joseph. <clears throat> he says, and the patriarchs moved. He chooses wording carefully. Again, we certainly, just like we looked in Peter's sermon, we don't have all the words. We have the words that God wants us to have. And it does tell us the direction that Stephen was going. And he says, And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. Delivered him out of all his afflictions. Gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Then the dearth came. The famine hits. He discussed affliction hits. Jacob has to send his boys to Egypt to try and get food. The second time Joseph makes known to his brethren who he is. And then jo Joseph has them moved into Egypt. What's, what is he doing right here? Remember at the end of this, they're so infuriated by his words. They stone him, right? When this started, I assure you, when this started, the Sanhedrin does not have the intention of killing him when this is over with. It's what he says that leads to the rage. By going to Joseph, it's incredible what he's doing. 
he is going to show them that God has already given to them a preview of the life of the Messiah and how he would be treated and what would happen to him. He's demonstrating how the life of Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. The Messiah that they have missed. He's showing them, listen, you already know a story like the one I've been, I've been preaching Christ. I'm standing here for preaching Christ about who he was, his death, burial, and his resurrection. And now I'm on trial for it. He says, I'm going to tell you what. You already have a story just like this in the Old Testament in Joseph. You already know the story. Keep in mind, this will be the first time that every single one of, of those in the Sanhedrin, as well as other leaders that are present, like the apostle, the man who would become the apostle Paul. This is going to be the first time they're going to be hearing out of the word of God how what they all know about Christ. This is the same group, the same group right here that brought him before Pilate. That stirred the crowd to start crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate saying, he's innocent. And there's still no crucify him. This is the same group. And now for the first time, they're getting ready to hear, and it's going to put them in awe, how much what God did with the life of Joseph in picturing the Messiah when he would come and what would happen to him. It's incredible. And it would be incredibly convicting, life-changing, life-altering, Challenging everything you thought about your, your theology. Challenging what you just did to the Messiah. He's going to show them how Joseph, how God used Joseph to typify the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is great timing with what we just preached on Sunday night, looking over the life of Joseph. Just incredible timing. In Genesis 37, we're introduced to Joseph. I, I, I don't have to go over it all again, we already did it. On Sunday night's message. 17 years old. Immediately put in a place of leadership like he was everywhere he went. The guy was a leader. That's what the code of many colors represented. It represented he, he was managing his dad's uh, um, uh, livestock and everything else. He, he, he was the 17 year old, the second youngest who's put in, put in control. He's made the boss. It says three times that Joseph is hated of his brethren in Genesis 37. Just like they hated Jesus Christ, his brethren. He was hated of them. Joseph's brother hated him for the same reason the Jews hated Christ. Do you know that in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 11? Know, know what it says, the reason for the hatred? Envy. Envy. Guess what we have in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 18? Pilate told the Jews, you hate him because of envy. He's demonstrating Joseph typified Jesus Christ. And remember, the words he's given him, they can't resist. They're realizing, I mean, could you imagine Saul being there and hearing this? Remember, Saul is still a man who wants truth. That's why God still responded to him. At this moment, he's not going to get converted. I mean, this is challenging everything. He, he is hearing a solid argument. That makes sense of something God would do with one of the patriarchs and typifying the Messiah. And he can't refute it. There's so much more. 
Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him. Just like the Jews, the Sanhedrin conspired to kill Christ. They wanted him dead. The fact is, his brothers resented Joseph over his goodness. He was one that genuinely took faith in God serious. His brothers did not. The same was true of Christ. You think of all the good that he did, and it, they just, it just grew in resentment. Oh, because he was getting popular. Oh, he's the favored one now with the multitudes. They wanted that stopped. Like with Joseph, their poor character, their badness was made clear by his goodness. Joseph was falsely accused and arrested. They know what happened with Potiphar's wife being accused of rape that never happened. Just like Jesus Christ was falsely accused and arrested. He's typifying the Messiah. Joseph was placed in a place of death, but it would not hold him. God would intervene. Joseph was exalted and given a name at the time above every name. I, I could never pronounce the name that Pharaoh gave him, but I will give you the meaning of it. Savior of the world. Just like Christ was placed in that place of death when he was nailed to the cross, nailed to the cross and died, only to become the Savior of the world upon his resurrection. Do you understand? He's making a case for Christ as the Messiah, and he's using Joseph to do it. Jesus, too, would come out of the place of death as the Savior of the world. As with Joseph, his brethren meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Remember, as I was going over, I was excited because it was one of my favorite college classes, was how the life of Joseph typified Jesus Christ. Again, Joseph's brother meant it for evil. God used it for good. As the Bible says, you know what Joseph told him? To save much people alive. <laughs> Just think of this. The Sanhedrin meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To give eternal life to all who would come. I mean, just think for a second. You have the mind of Paul. Paul is there standing off to the sideline, listening to this take place. Do you know how challenging this is to him at the time? Paul is having no trouble connecting all the exact same dots that Stephen is putting together. He has this portion of Scripture completely memorized. And he knows exactly what happened to Christ. He knows they were moved with envy. He knows they hated him. He knows he was falsely accused. He knows of the resurrection and the claims that he's now the Savior of the world. But it goes on. There's more. Joseph was used to bring salvation to the earth 
as Christ is used to bring eternal salvation to the world. Joseph, being exhausted, also put into motion the action that would one day bring his brethren bowing down before him. Just like after the resurrection, things were put in motion. The day would come when all of Christ's brethren would bow down before him. One day they will realize that though he was dead, he is alive. The one we betrayed is now our Savior. That day will come. They will look on Him in whom they have pierced. The day will come, just like Joseph had his moment. It came through trials and tribulations, a famine, Joseph going through and testing the repentance. The day would come when Joseph finally revealed himself, picturing exactly what Christ will do with the nation of Israel after a time of tribulation and testing. When they're going to realize, just like his brothers did with Joseph, that's Joseph. Christ, Jesus was the Messiah. He's putting it all in play. They're going to realize, like his brothers, the one we betrayed still has grace and forgiveness for us. Again, this will happen after a time of tribulation. They had the famine. With Christ, it will be the great tribulation. They will have to seek salvation. And that salvation will be found in Christ. Just think, we went over the book of Revelation. We got into detail the day of Armageddon, what's going to take place. Just think when Christ returns. And again, they look on Him in whom they have pierced. And they will bow down. I think that's one of the reasons why God stirs our heart when we're reading through Genesis. I do. I was thinking about that just in this just this week. As I mentioned Sunday night when we went over forgiveness and how Joseph is, is gives us one of the greatest reasons to be a person that practices forgiveness. But how it's that section that you read that just brings you to tears almost like no other. How you just can't stop reading it. I think a lot of the reason why God's Spirit does it because He knows that's what's going to happen one day. So Joseph is making the argument before the Sanhedrin. And remember, I, I, I tried to make a case last week. I probably should have dove into it a little bit more. I believe Stephen was highly educated for several reasons. Uh, and and the, I believe, uh, you know, God does things for different purposes. We don't, I mean, he uses from Peter, who was a fisherman from Galilee, to, to change the world. He uses, now he's going to use Stephen here, even though it's, like, like we talked last week, God doesn't need duration of a ministry. He just needs a yielded man to be able to change some, to be able to change the world. So think of, think of this. They're hearing this for the first time. Paul is hearing this argument, this apologetic for the life of Joseph pictured in what he knows just happened to Jesus Christ. There's not a point he can refute. Do you, think how, do you know how convicting that's going to be? Remember when Christ comes to him in, in chapter 9, is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? This is one of them. This is one of those things just stabbing at him. You better believe that night, he is, that, he is at, in his bed at night right now just... Man, he's right. 
we were moved with envy. But the betrayal. He, they, came, they had to come for salvation. I mean, you could just see all those thoughts running. Is this true? And him having to fight against it because then it means what? I, I, I've been believing wrong. But when he does meet Christ, remember what he says. All those things that were gained in me before I counted as loss. That reveals much about the Apostle Paul and why he became the man he was. He wasn't about his position. He was about truth. And the moment it really set in, he forsook all that was false to follow Christ. When they're hearing this, this is changing the world as they know it. I mean, think, I believe when they were arguing in the synagogue before they went to the Sanhedrin, I believe, I believe that, that, that Stephen was making the case of how we are saved by faith without the deeds of the law. Paul hearing that for the first time. I believe he heard how Christ is the Lamb of God and is alive. Especially because the charges that were brought up against him. I believe he was talking about how all that was a shadow of what was to come. It's, it's finished now. It's done. And on top of that, he just heard Stephen make a great case. For God directing the life of Joseph to be a picture of the life of the Messiah. And know what, know what Saul knows? That's just like God to do something like that. Now, with Stephen, we learned something for us, too. Let me finish with this. And, and think about this. Stephen was ready to give an answer. I have news for you, too. He's a new convert. At the most, he's been saved a few months. At the most. Now, understand this. He was, he was a faithful Jew, so he knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He didn't have to learn. He knew that. But he's still a new convert. We have to be ready to give an answer. I mean, that, that's, that's even commanded of us in the New Testament. Was it First Peter, I can't remember, was it 3.15? To be, to be ready to give an answer to the hope that is in you. I, again, I remember when I was taught soul winning. When I was first, there was so much wrong with how I was initially taught to, taught to win souls. I remember one of the things was, if they ask you a question, dismiss it and stay on track. And don't, there's a logic to that. There is. I understand why they were teaching that. I disagree with it now. Because I got almost the same questions. Now, don't get me wrong. If they're just throwing questions to, you know, not sincerely, I wanted nothing to do with them. Nothing. But I usually got the same questions. This is going back to my days in high school when I really started witnessing all, all, everybody I could. The questions that I got were like this almost every time. And this is going back, you know... 86, 87, 88, my high school years. They were usually like this. What about the dinosaurs? Out of the blue. I'm going through the gospel. What about the dinosaurs? Or, where did Cain get his wife? I would, those were the questions I would get. And I would dismiss them, because that's what I was taught to do. We'll get back to it. Let's just talk about this. Do you know what they were telling me now that I look back? It, it took me until I was in New Guinea going over how I was witnessing to settle on this. What most of them were telling me was this. Give me a reason to believe you. This is why I've been taught it's not true. Have an answer. 
It doesn't take much to have an answer. It doesn't. You're thinking, I can never do that. Listen, you get to study. It doesn't take much. It doesn't. You can be ready with an answer. Listen, if you're the lost person that's grown up in this secular, humanistic culture now that is America, that is obsessed with pleasure, we, we had a visitor on Sunday. It was such a joy to talk to him. I almost had me in tears when, when he was leaving. He was here um, Sunday night's message. It was Sunday night. He was here, not Sunday morning. Sun, he was from Connecticut. And we were talking after the service. And he said... He said, oh, I want to come back. I really enjoyed it. And I said, well, did you grow up going to church? He goes, you're not going to believe this. He said, this was my first time ever in a church. If you grew up like that, you want somebody that can give you some answers. Not just run through six verses and say, pray this. We're dealing with eternal Life. What Stephen did here was incredible. He's before the leaders of the nation. And he just proved to them how the life of Joseph typified what they just did to Jesus Christ. And let him know as he's going to get to at the end, you're going to bow down to him one day. The day's coming. The day's coming. Tribulation's going to hit. And the day's going to come. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me ask this first. If you're here right now and you say, Pastor McGovern, I'm not even certain that if I died, where I'm going. I don't know that I am, without a doubt, that when I die, that I am going to heaven. That's what you have to get settled. The whole reason God became a man in Jesus Christ was to save us from the judgment to come. That judgment to come is the day that you will stand before Almighty God and He will judge you. And you're guilty. You're going to be found guilty. We all are. If you're here right now, say, Pastor, please pray for me. I am not certain that heaven is my home. I need you to pray for me. Will you just raise your hand? Let me see it real quick. Then you can put it back down. Just slide your hand up. Yes, sir, I see that hand. Anybody else? For the, for the one who put his hand up right now, I'm going I'm to talk to you for just a second. I want you to listen to me. The Bible says, It is appointed a man once to die, but after this the judgment. As I've already said, one day you will die and you'll be judged of Almighty God. When He judges you, the Bible tells us how this is going to work. He's going to use His law. You know, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not... I, I, I can go through all of them. The fact is, just like me, you're guilty of every single one of them. You'd be found guilty. Something has to take place where you look perfect. That's why Jesus Christ came to the earth, to make you look perfect. God became a man 2,000 years ago and walked on this earth a perfect life. When he went to the cross, God placed upon him all of our sin and judged him in your place. There's a great verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That verse might sound complicated, but it's not. It's one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. It teaches us what happened that day on the cross. Many today in America hear that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They don't have a clue at what that means. What took place 2,000 years ago was God the Father placed upon His Son the sin of us all. He judged Him in your place, satisfying God's justice for our sin. At the same time, that enables him, the verse says, to give us his righteousness or his perfect life. He lived a perfect life without sin. The only one to go to judgment, the father could say, you're innocent. I find no fault. He died for you that he could give you his perfect life. So that you can, he, you, he could take your sin and you can take his righteousness. And it's going through repentance and faith. It was on June 30th of 1982 that I realized that truth and I repented and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, yes, I want to know more about that. I think I need that right now. I can have somebody come to you, take you aside, just make sure you understand what I just said. Now, if you're, if you're interested in that, you just look up at me and I'll send somebody to you. Let's take you aside for about five minutes. You just look up at me if that's something you want to do. I'll give you just uh, a few seconds here. All right. If after the service you want to talk, you let me know. Christian, we have a great example for all of us in Stephen. A man whose life was all about God. Shortly lived from his conversion, but boy, what a difference he made. If you need to, come, if you need to pray, you come and pray. If you have something else, you need to come and pray. Come and pray. If something's on your heart, you come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, work in hearts and lives. Lord, I pray especially for the one who raises his hand about salvation. Lord, I pray that conviction and that drawing, that he repent and place his faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Page 43. If you need to come and pray here this evening, you come and pray.